Hey there, Recovery Nation, producer John here. In today's special episode of Full Potential Now, Ted dives deep into the amazing life story of former gang member and tattoo pioneer, Freddie Negretti. First, we'll talk with author Steve Jones, who co-wrote Freddie's biography, Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos. After that, Ted sits down with poet and former gang rival Luis Rodriguez to discuss art, loss, and reconciliation after escaping 1970s LA gang life. Finally, we'll hear from the man himself, Freddie Negretti. Don't go anywhere. You do not want to miss this. So why does life bring us together with certain people at certain times? Is it random? Is it circumstance? Are we destined to? Or is it due to our own life choices? We always talk about how we should love those people that mean so much to us. Yet it seems we never really talk about how we should treat or think about our enemies. You know those people we simply don't like that much. Maybe it's due to their values, religion, political beliefs, or the side of the neighborhood they live on. Or better yet, maybe even the gang they're affiliated with. But what if we could actually learn something from those people? Maybe there's even a part of them we admire or take inspiration from. What if we became friends with them when they were in their deepest of sorrows? And what would happen if randomly a writer-publisher crossed paths with someone at an AA meeting and was so moved and inspired by their story they had to write about it. So I happened to be in, in California in 2010. I had a meeting at a, a, a software company up around the Silicon Valley. Essentially, I got a text from this lady saying, hey, do you want to see my friend Freddie? Uh, talk. He's, he's giving a talk tomorrow night. Do you want to come along? And uh, so I went along and I really didn't know anything about Freddie. Uh, I didn't know his background or what he did for a living. Uh, and then and Freddie just started talking about his, his background, which was, uh, you know, East Los Angeles. His parents were Pachuco gang, gang members, how he grew up in foster care and uh, how he was in and out of juvenile hall, juvenile camp, youth authority. And, um, you know, I was really intrigued by the story and I found it a really fascinating story. And there's an aspect of the story which is also quite tragic because Freddie's son, passed away, was actually murdered in a gang conflict. So, um, you know, the talk went from being, you know, fascinating, intriguing, to being then very moving and touching and heart-wrenching. And then, you know, Freddie came out of that really, because he really went into very, very hardcore heroin addiction. But he came out of that. And it really struck me as a, as a redemption story and a transformation story and a positive story. And I felt, wow, this is a, a story that needs to be told. So, um, you know, we went for a coffee afterwards. We got to know each other and I suggested that we write a book together. So I had the basics of Freddie's story uh, f- from the talk, you know, the kind of uh, the, the essential elements. But then when I started talking to, to Freddie, um, like the details of his story were just really amazing. 
you know, his stories in Youth Authority Prison and the things he survived there. It was a very violent place. And then surviving because he ended up with drug induced congestive heart failure. And he nearly died in the L.A. County Jail. He had three heart attacks in the L.A. County Jail. And, you know, he really really hit that classic rock-bottom moment, you know. Not only rock-bottom in terms of his addiction, but also in terms of his health. And um, it was a powerful story of really him um, just sort of getting on his knees and asking for help. And, 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 and really that being a real pivotal point in his life and then how his, how his life changed, you know, how he experienced, which is how he experienced now a decade of success, um, you know, clean, sober and then and giving back and, and, and counselling now other young addicts. So um, we, we got to know each other very, very well, you know, because we would be we have these long Skype interviews and, and because, you know, I'm in long-term recovery myself, there were actually many touch points where there was a sort of shorthand between us where it was just like Freddie would say something. I go, yeah, I get that immediately, you know? Um, but there were certain areas of the story that I couldn't relate to. And that was the gang aspect. Uh, you know, Freddie was in a gang and his, you know, you're talking from the age of like 13 to, uh, I mean, actively, it's a 18, 19 years old. And that was an aspect that it took me a long time to understand why you'd put yourself in those positions of danger where either you're shooting at other people or other people are shooting at you. And, you know, it was a real, it was a real gang turf war. And many, many of, of Freddie's friends were killed, you know, and I could, I could never imagine myself putting myself in that kind of position, but it was really towards the end of the book that it sort of all started clicking together and kind of doing my research, why you would do that. And it was, it was, I think a lot of it goes back to the way he was treated in his foster home. You know, he was physically abused and, you know, having the self-esteem essentially pummeled out of him, always told he was a no good dirty Mexican. That's what his foster parents is, especially the father used to tell him. And, you know, what he got from the gang was first respect, a sense of self-esteem, a very strong sense of belonging with the barrio or the neighborhood as they call it with the gang and, um, very powerful symbols. And with the, the tattoos, you know, uh, the imagery, around that and then uh, I mean as he said is that comradeship where you know that um, you know somebody's got your back and a bit like soldiers you know soldiers that's what soldiers actually say um, talk about that 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 comradeship and and so that was uh, yeah it was kind of interesting for me um, to kind of get that insight. And it actually took a while, really. It was only really just before really completing the book. It was like, all right, I get this now. And that, so that, that kind of all came together as well, almost like a, as a part of the conclusion of the book as well.
So here's the thing, and this I think makes the story interesting. We were actually rival gang members uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. These two neighborhoods had, at the time, it was called by National Magazine, the worst gang violence in L.A. And uh, the neighborhoods were called Lomas, which was my neighborhood, which means the hills. And essentially, it was like Appalachia. It was dirt roads, abandoned cars, little shacks goats and chickens and dogs in the street and just a poor migrant Mexican neighborhood. Freddie lived in our rival neighborhood, which was called Sangra, which is S-A-N-G-R-A. And that was um, around the San Gabriel Mission, um, which was an old mission, one of the missions that was set up when the Spanish came through California. And there was a, a migrant community there of Mexicans that worked in the industry or worked in the farms or whatever was going on. Um, and for some reason, in ni- around 1950 or so, there was problems with these two neighborhoods, even though some people were related. I even went to school with some of these guys, but there was always some kind of rivalry, some hassle, something was going on. And by the late 60s, things got really bad. There was drive-bys, people were being killed. Uh, things intensified in the streets of LA, especially with the Chicano gangs. Uh, soon after the blood crypts came out and the bloods and they got, you know, just as violent and just as active. But it was many Chicano gangs that had been doing it since the Pachuco days in the thirties and really picked up in the sixties and seventies. So we were actually enemies. And I don't know if that helps, but we were wow. actually trying to hurt each other. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah, if you can just kind of roll through the story a little bit and how it went down. So, so how do you then eventually kind of become friends? So, so here's what happened. He was known as the artist of his neighborhood. He did these amazing aerosol murals on walls, all gang-related, but the gang stuff was very intense and very well done. I don't know if you know, but Chicanos pioneered that kind of uh, aerosol art and also tattooing, which is called fine line, you know, the shading, black and gray, um, we pioneered it in the streets and eventually showed up in the prisons and eventually now it's all over the world. Um, he was doing it on the walls as well as on tattoos, uh, which was very popular among the Chicano gangs. Nobody had tattoos there unless you were a biker um, or a sailor or a Chicano gang member. You know how that was. Now everybody's got tattoos, so it doesn't, it doesn't have the same impact as when you had them. And I turned out to be the artist of my neighborhood almost by accident. I was doing big graffiti pieces. I was a big graffiti guy, but it was all gang related. It was very intricate lettering and all that. And um, I, I ended up uh, defacing a culture center that, I mean, a community center that opened up in my neighborhood and people were going to call the cops. They knew who it was. They knew it was me. And they just hired this youth worker and he turned out to be a, a really decent guy and my mentor. He started talking to me. Instead of arresting me, he talked to me about painting murals and that I was an artist and I had no idea what he was talking about. And he would go and talk about the Mayans and how they had uh, murals in and inside and outside their mural, uh, their temples. And he was giving me knowledge that I didn't have. I didn't know. I didn't understand any of it. Uh, about age 17, I ended up painting eight, um, eight murals in the community with 13 gang members. And these were aerosol. Now these weren't, I mean, these weren't aerosol. These were, um, you know, acrylic paints. And it was done in the old style of Mexico and, you know, the 60s movement type murals. 
So I ended up being the muralist for my neighborhood, and Freddie was the artist for his neighborhood. And even though we were enemies, there was a recognition there between us. Um, and just so you know, both me and Freddie were actively involved in the gangs. We have shot people. I have stabbed people. I never killed anybody, thank God. And I have also been shot at. He's been shot at. Uh, we've been through. I was a heroin addict for seven years. I was homeless in the streets. I was in and out of jails. And we both pretty much got out of it in the sense that a lot of our homies didn't make it. They died. They died of heroin overdoses. They died by gang bullets, by police killings. Many of them end up in prison for many years. I know guys that are still in prison from the back in those days, 40 years later, they're still in prison. Me and Freddie kind of like survived most of that. We had other problems, unfortunately. Drugs and our addictions still played a role. Uh, I ended up being an alcoholic after I let go of those drugs. I had uh, problems with relationships. I was all over the place, but I was pretty much done with the crazy life when I had my son. Uh, when I was 20 years old, I, I uh, had my first son, and it changed my life. Uh, Freddie went to his own trajectories, but I will say that around the mid-70s, I found out that Freddie was working at this uh, tattoo place on um, in Whittier Boulevard in East LA, in Montebello, which was called um, Good Time Charlie's. And what they were doing is introducing the black and gray style and the tattoo world, which at the time was all white people imitating the style, but not they weren't hiring Chicanos or anybody else. And Freddie was like one of the first ones to break through. And he oh, was hired. Okay. And he, yeah, he became important. He was a pioneer bringing that style into the tattoo world. And, of course, it's never been the same since then. There was people like Ed Hardy that were already hip to the style, uh, Jack Rudy, who actually did a couple of tattoos on me. In those days, I went in that shop and got me a tat couple of tattoos with these guys. I, I got to talk to Freddie, and even though the gang war was still going on, he was aware that I was no longer actively fighting, and neither was he. Um, okay. And we talked. We talked. It was friendly. Not that we were going to be bosom buddies, but we at least were friendly enough. Um, and then over the years, we just um, didn't really get in touch again until about 20, I think 2010, or just before 2010, I, I'm not sure exactly the year uh, his son died. I don't know. He oh. might give you the exactly. His son was killed. And I reached out to him because I heard about it. And I knew that he was working at the, the Shamrock um, Social Club with Mike Mahoney. And he was still doing tattoos. So I reached out to him. And we had a really nice dinner. And my son was in prison at the time. So it was okay. kind of like our sons kind of called us together. That son that I held was not doing, uh, he ended up doing about 15 years in prison. And then, um, and his son got killed. So it just, it was an, uh, I guess to take advantage of a situ bad situation between our sons was to sit down. And we had a really nice talk and he did tell me, we were sharing stories and one story was that he did a drive-by in my neighborhood and uh, one guy was actually shot in the eye and lost his eye and he didn't know that I was one of the guys he was shooting at. <laughs> I actually was oh. there getting shot at. I didn't get hit, but it was, it was, he was shooting at me. And I go, and, he, and when I told him he, I was one of the guys there, he, he quieted and looked at me like, you know, I don't know what he thought, but I told him, you know what, man, it, it's a shame that we did all these things. It's a shame that we hurt each other. Uh, look what happened to his son. Look what happened to my son. Look at all the, we're losing so many kids. 
And, you know, we agreed. We're, we're like in our mid-50s then. And we're older and we realize, man, we're grandfathers and we realize, man, so much death. So we be, that's when we really started to get closer and realizing that we actually had more in common. I showed up to his recovery program. He does that, that Jewish um, 12-step program. And um, I, I, I told him about the work that I was doing in my Native American uh, recovery work. And we, were, we just got to be friends and have been friends ever since. And that's pretty much how the, eventually when I heard about the book that was being done with Steve Jones, I supported it as much as I could. I felt his story. My book was, had already been out. I, I don't know if you're aware of the book that I came out with called Always Running. Um, okay. And that came out in 93. It's 25-year anniversary this year. And that it had an impact because it came a year after the Alley Uprising. And so anybody oh. wanted to know about LA gangs, you know, because now that was a big deal. And I had one of the, one of two books at the time from actual gang members. The other one was, uh, Shanika Shankur's Monster about the Crips. And I had the Chicano end, and that book got to be very popular. I sold half a million copies of that book. And uh, I got to be on Oprah Winfrey, Good Morning America, Entertainment Weekly. I was all over the place. And then, uh, when he and Steve Jones were working on his book, I um, wanted to help as much as I could, and I ended up writing the forward. I, I, you know, I think you got the book, right? Yes, yes. To kind of let people know, I've written a book, I've carried that story, but now here's another guy from the same area doing amazing work that, whose story needs to be told. Because then again, his trajectory was different than mine. So he ended up going through so many different things. Even after he left the active gang life, he was still involved with drugs, and still involved with different relationships, and... You know what I'm saying? He went through a lot, and it's all in the book about everything that he was going through. So yeah, so that story, yeah. So, so how do you think? It, it sounds like you know, if I'm tracing the story correctly, Luis. So you guys, so you get out of kind of gang life around twenty. Yeah, yeah. But he continues on, right? Like, so, so have you been? How long have you been sober? Um. 24 years, uh, because what happened is after I got off the drugs, I ended up drinking, and I had 20 years on top of the, you know, alcoholism to deal with. But, okay. but here's one thing. I never went back to jail. I never went back to the gang crime or heroin. So I had other issues. That's why I have another memoir called, it's called It Calls You Back. Because even when you leave that life, you're still having to address the madness that keeps calling you back, you know, and it takes the form of rage and or some addiction. And I had to write about that, including losing my kids, not being a father for my two oldest kids in a way, and then having to inherit my kids that were already troubled, um, youth, teenagers, and then having two other boys beyond that, learning to be a father, sobering up and beginning to change my life again. Um, so that was my, my trajectory. He had a different one. We have all, at one time or another when we were kids, asked that famous question of what we would like to do when we grow up. Sometimes we might think of doctor, lawyer, scientist, or even artist. I honestly don't think anyone signs up to be a criminal, gangster, or drug addict as a career. It's not like they identify this as the ideal career for themselves, and they do everything in their power to take this trajectory. 
But what if they were living in, let's say, East L.A. way back in the day, where gangster life and drive-bys all started? Would they then just be destined to live a life of drug addiction, crime, prison time, and even die way too early due to this life? Or are there some that walk this path, but meet the fork in the road, and despite what has happened previously in their life, become something else, maybe even a legendary artist and inspiration to others? Maybe take us maybe back to, was it East L.A., back in the 70s and kind of where you were at and how you got into, it sounds like how you got into tattooing, but also like kind of your upbringing and kind of a little bit about your path. Yeah, well, you know, um, I was kind of a troubled youth, you know. Uh, My parents were both pachucos, you know. Uh, they went to prison when I was real young, and so my sister and I went through a uh, really tough childhood, going through foster homes and things like that. And and you know, I ended up um, joining a neighborhood. You know, uh, people call it a gang, but it's it's like a barrio, uh, Chicano, a Chicano gang. And I was really involved with that. You know, like it, it's it provided you know like a like a family, you know, I had no family. So, so, uh, I was really committed to my neighborhood and my homeboys and that whole Chicano scene, you know, that took place in the seventies. And, um, and I was also institutionalized. So I spent a lot of time in juvenile hall and camps and youth authority. In fact, the longest uh, period of time that probably from the age of 12 to I got out when I was 22. The longest period of time that I would be out at at once would be like two months, and you know, and then I'd be right back in. So, uh, spending that time in the institution uh, developed my art, you know. And um, like I said, those images that were very important to us, and uh, and this amazing tattoo style developed in California prison with the Chicano culture, with uh, you know, prison ingenuity, inventing the homemade tattoo machine out of a cassette motor. And I got really, really good at it. And so when I finally did get out, you know, I set up shop in my in my kitchen. And I started tattooing homeboys and people around the neighborhood. And at the very same time, there was this uh, man, Good Time Charlie and Jack Rudy, they opened up a tattoo shop in East LA on the on the street where everybody cruised and everything, Whittier Boulevard, and and um, so when they opened up the shop, they they saw all these people that all wanted tattoos, but they didn't want traditional style tattooing. You know, they wanted their tattoos to look like they were done in prison with those images. So they started learning, you know, how uh, and adjusting what the people wanted. You know. Uh, Jack Rudy being a great artist and also, uh, you know, growing up in the Chicano neighborhoods and everything, started doing really beautiful work. So people that I would tattoo in my apartment, I'd send them to Good Time Charlie's to show them my work. And then uh, people would come to me to show me Jack's work. And finally, Jack and I, you know, connected and, and 
uh, we became friends. And eventually, Ed Hardy bought uh, Good Times Hardy's in East L.A. And um, he felt like, wow, we got to get this guy in here. You know, he, he relates to these people, you know, and he knows the art form. So they hired me. And then Jack Rudy and myself, along with Ed Hardy and Bob Roberts, Mark Mahoney, we uh, started a new style of tattooing that's come to be known as black and gray realism. So, uh, so I guess I'm known for that, you know, being one of the pioneers of, uh, of black and gray, which has become probably the foremost form of tattooing, our style of tattooing in the world. I mean, from Japan, Australia, all over Europe, Ukraine, Russia, it's just amazing to see that, you know, our little style that started in East L.A. and developed in the California prison system has become this worldwide phenomenon, you know. That, and the images, yeah, amazing. a lot of the images are still the same, you know. Like, um, it's funny to see these artists from Milan and Paris and London, you know, and Japan doing that the Chicano images that we love so much, like the religious stuff and the Chola girls, you know, with the clown faces and the smile, not cry later and all those things. Wow. So you saw it really start at its infancy, be part of almost like the developers. And now here we're sitting like that's happening in the seventies. And now we're sitting in 2018, which is like, like 40 some years later. Right. And yeah, it just has. You've seen its evolution, right? And, you know, and and it's been a blessing to see. You know when when uh, you know Ed Hardy, he he's really the great master of tattooing. He introduced the Japanese style to America. Uh, he he uh, developed. Um, you know he he named the style of tattooing that was done in America traditional tattooing. He put the black and gray out there, you know, so he was really the genius behind this movement. But what what we wanted to achieve at the time was to get people to see tattooing as an actual form of art because people didn't think it was. You know, they would look at it and say, that's not art, you know, and there was a there was a definite you know, argument about whether or not tattooing is art. So to watch it, how it's progressed from then to now, and even being in in the Natural History Museum, I would say that our objective was achieved, you know, to get people to see tattooing as art. And then to see all these incredible artists, um, you know, doing it, you know, that that's really been the big change is the fact that you know, fantastic illustrators that that um, have all this talent that are now, you know, doing tattoos or choosing tattooing as their their medium. You know, it's just really amazing. Well, man, I'm like so like I'm like sitting here, Freddie, and you know, you're obviously involved in the you know the LA gang scene, tattooing, prison you know, addiction, getting into recovery, all this. But as I'm, this is my first time talking to you and meeting you, I'm just like struck with this, like, 
I'm talking to an artist. <laughs> I don't, I'm, like, I'm talking to an artist. So I'm like going to ask you kind of a crazy question, which is like, have you, like, if you really trace it back, have you always been an artist? Uh, yeah, you know, um, you know, my, my, my father and my uncles were all prison artists. You know, my father was a really good oil painter and, you know, the, so, uh, you know, the kind of that talent runs in my family. And, um, you know, when I was real young in school, you know, they, they told my foster parents, oh yeah, he has art ability and stuff. So it's always been in my head. And the fact that I spent so much time, you know, uh, in institutions, you know, so I had time to sit and draw and I had something to draw, you know, like I had definite images that were very important to me that I worked on constantly, you know, so. What do you think? So. Oh yeah, continue. Uh, so I guess you could say, yeah, I've, I've always been an artist. Yeah, I'm struck because, so I've been an alcohol and drug counselor for it seems like zillions of years and work with a lot of people and I work with kids in the foster care system as well. Um, but what I'm always like struck with from, from my perspective, just personally and professionally is this idea that everybody kind of has talents. Everybody has strengths. And as I work with more and more people in recovery, it, there's such a shame attached to the addictive, the addiction part of things. And what I think is sometimes lost a little bit in treatment is trying to help people sort of like tap back into what is really their strength and, and their gifts. And so when I'm sitting with you, that's what's totally resonating for me right now. It's like, this guy's like, you, you know, you got your pieces in a museum, you know, a display or is it a museum or it's a, it's like all over the world. And I'm like, I'm talking to a guy that's like into his art. Like it really, like it was natural for you to gravitate towards that. And I guess my question is like wondering, how did that help you? As you, I mean, we'll talk about the ups and downs, but what do you think art did for you as you kind of have gone through your life journey? Well, I, I would say it's, it's done quite a bit, you know, especially over the years. Um, you know, being a gangster and all that and being locked up, uh, I, I really had no, no positive kind of future in sight. You know, I, I, I can honestly say that I pretty much felt that I was going to be in prison for the rest of my life. You know, um, I never thought anything much would change for me. And it's funny, you know, I ended up in a, a an institution, uh, a program for like uh, out of control YAs. It was in Youth Authority, California Youth Authority. That's like prison for, you know, state prison for uh, teenagers, you know, from 14 to 20. And uh, but I ended up in, in uh, this program called Tamarack. Uh, it was a lockup program, but the staff there, you know, um, they had this this policy of leniency. You know, it's just like, um, as long as you guys don't kill each other, we'll let you tattoo. You know, we'll we'll let we'll bring you pornography. We won't search your cells. You know, so for the three years that I was there, I 
I tattooed every day, you know, and um, it was just the big change that came about in my life was getting a job at a tattoo shop and a, a shop that was very popular and we had a huge clientele. So things really changed for me, you know, like I wasn't thinking about going out and robbing or stealing or, you know, hustling. Uh, all of a sudden I felt like I was a new person, you know, I had a legitimate job and it was something that I loved and something that I did well. And it brought a great change about in my life, you know, like all of a sudden I, I felt like I, I should have a family, you know, and I got married and, you know, I had my first son, you know, and, you know, things, things really, really changed for me. So how, um, how old are you then? So you go to this place for three years and you're from what age to what age? Uh, so I, I finally got out this, I went in when I was 17 and I got out when I was, uh, 22. Okay. So here you're thinking you're, you're institutionalized for five years, which a lot of the research would say when he gets out, he's probably gonna go right back to the gang stuff, the robbing, the drug and all that kind of stuff. And instead, due to the fact that probably the staff just didn't want to like have a bunch of incidents, they allow you guys to tattoo, and it almost gives you the environment. And help me out if I'm off on this, because I could totally be off on this Friday. But in some weird way, it gives you the chance to really hone your art, and you get like feelings of like, hey, like I'm something more than what I was, and maybe I could have a different kind of life. Right. Exactly. You know, it had nothing to do with. Uh, the- and- what, what all these I didn't places? see it at the time, you know, when when I was doing all the tattooing and tamarack and getting really good at it. Um, well, maybe I did kind of see it because I always told the staff, hey, you know, you guys should send me to board, you know, and give me a time time cut. I'll, I can get a job at a tattoo shop. So. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. That's all right. So maybe I did kind of you know, uh, see it, but, uh, I, I didn't realize it, of course, until I got out and started working at Good Time Charlie's. A a really good story is, you know, uh, there was a tattoo convention in Sacramento, you know, it was the first one that I ever went to and Ed Hardy was really promoting me there. And, and there was this big tattoo that I did, you know, uh, like a full back piece, you know, which is kind of rare, you know, for for the seventies, and I did all my Chicano art on there, and I mixed color with black and gray, and and it won me Tattoo Artist of the Year, and and people were amazed with this new style of tattooing that we were introducing to all the tattoo world. Anyway, so uh, on the last day, I was tattooing in the booth, and then all of a sudden, I heard somebody, and we had everybody was around us and stuff, but I heard somebody say. Fernando, and I was like, nobody calls me Fernando. Who's calling me? <laughs> you know, and because that's my real name, Fernando, and they just call me Freddie. But yeah. I looked up, and it was about four staff members from Tamarack program there. You know, because it, the institution wasn't too far from Sacramento, and I was like, oh man, what's up? And they're like, dude, we knew you'd make it. We knew you'd make it because they did finally give me a time cut. They did finally send me the board, and I got a time cut. So that was 
that was a moment in my life where I was, uh, you know, feeling really proud, you know, like, you know, uh, when I never expected to ever do anything with my life, you know, I, I felt like I, I was a success, you know? <laughs> so you're like maybe 22, 23 at the time. Yeah. So how does, um, alcohol and your journey through alcohol and drugs fit into the whole story? Well, you know, you know, my, uh, being also, you know, being a kid and growing up in that environment, um, we drank all the time and, and at the, you know, uh, pills were real popular back then, you know, red devils and all that stuff, the barbiturates and everything. So we dabbled in that a little bit, smoke weed, uh, but the older guys all ended up being heroin addicts. And I remember at the time when I was a kid, uh, and and me and my most of the homeboys my age like frowned on it because it seemed to take you know the older guys out of the loop you know like they weren't concerned about you know our conflicts with other neighborhoods or or you know the things that we did around the neighborhood or some of the negative you know hanging out they they were more like wanting to be in the cut and and um even fraternizing with the enemy over drug deals and it it seemed pathetic to me to see them on a porch you know nodded nodded out you know so i kind of frowned on heroin use but you know after i got married and everything um i became one of them i became an older homeboy and uh you know i started using heroin so and that you know, of course, it's been a lot of years, but I was always up and down, you know, uh, doing it, not doing it, methadone, you know. Um, I think I I was on methadone maintenance three times, you know. Okay. And uh, so, you know, I had a struggle with it all through through my life and my career. Um, and, and uh, you know, being a tattoo artist, it was a little bit easier, you know, to, to, to feed a Jones, you know, to, to feed an addiction because, you know, uh, you make money every day. So you didn't have to go out and hustle or it's almost impossible for a heroin addict to maintain a regular job, you know, because they need their shot every day. You you understand what I mean? Yeah, totally. Totally. I, I was able to continue on with an addiction because I tattooed, but, um, so, so I always had that struggle, you know. Um, you know, later later on in life, I was introduced to speed and and mixing speed and heroin together. So I did a lot of that, but you know, eventually it affected my health. You know, um, in 2003, I was diagnosed with uh, drug-induced congestive heart failure. So. <clears throat> Now, you know, it's going to get you somehow, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, jails, institutions, uh, you know, alienation from your family and friends and people that are important to you and and your health, you know, it's going to get your health. So so just to make sure I'm, I'm getting it here. So you're like, get, so you get out 22, you sort of like get into a career as like a tattoo artist 
And do you walk away from gang life at that point, and then you're just on a tattoo artist sort of career track, along with having an addiction track kind of parallel in it? Yeah, you know, um, you know, of course, I, I did, you know, walk away from uh, from from the gang stuff, but I was still from my neighborhood, and our shop was in East LA, so, and there's, you know, like. Uh, gang members that I knew from because I was so institutionalized all the other hardcore gangsters were always in jail you know so I knew all these guys from all these different neighborhoods and stuff uh, but I was able to not get involved with you know the negative aspects and just focus on my work but at the same time I partied a lot you know yeah and um uh, you know, with the girls and all the homies and, you know, after work, our people hanging out at the shop. Our shop was like a little house on a, on a big lot and people, you know, and like a big parking lot and all kinds of homies, especially on the weekend because people cruised on, on Winter Boulevard right there. They'd come in and park their lowrider cars and hang out in our lot, you know, so the party scene was very much alive for me, okay. you know, so... And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, what, what comes with that is uh, drug use and addiction, you know. Yeah, it, it would seem like, so it made it difficult for you. So did you have some attempts to kind of get out of the loop of drug addiction? Like when you look at your time span between like 22, 23 to, you know, when you have the health issue, yeah, there was, you know, there was uh, actually, <clears throat> um, it's kind of a, a long story, but I'll try to just like make it, make it short. No. You know, my, my, my way of uh, dealing with addiction, because they didn't have any treatment centers or, you know, you never heard of anybody going to rehab. I, I don't even think I heard that word till later on in life anyways, but, you know, the way we dealt with it was to go get on the methadone program when you really feel, thought it was out of hand and you, you couldn't control it. You go to the methadone clinic and, and get on, get on a maintenance program and just, you know, you go in the morning and you get your dose and you're good for the day to the next morning, you know? Yeah. Um, but there was this, uh, there was this, uh, kind of a movement, uh, going down in East LA back in the late seventies and it was an evangelical movement and it stemmed from New York with, uh, this, uh, evangelical preacher named David Wilkerson. And he, you know, he reached out. I don't know if you ever heard of Nikki Cruz. Yeah. It was an old movie with about this, uh, New York gang, Puerto Rican gangster, Nikki Cruz that became a Christian and, and, um, started changing, you know, the, all the gang members and stuff. Well, anyways, that movement came to East LA. And right when I was at kind of at my lowest point with the drugs and my family, my marriage breaking up and, you know, all these bad things happening, you know, some of these hardcore gangsters that I knew as killers were showing up to the tattoo shop with Bibles and kind of like talking to me about Jesus, you know, and, you know, um, so I went went with them to uh, to one of their services, and I got touched, and 
And, you know, I accepted Christ and became a Christian. And with that, you know, I, I quit tattooing for a while. I went to college, took biblical literature. You know, so I guess it was about seven years of um, not doing anything. You know, I quit smoking. I quit everything. So, so yeah, there was you, that one break. <laughs> yeah. So how, so that's seven years. Are you in your 30s or 40s or? 20s. 20s. So you make the break and then you hit, you, you get back. So then you hit your 30s and what's life like for you? Well, you know, it's a, you know, um, so it was about 10 years that went by and, um, and meanwhile, tattooing had, had blown up. Uh, I became this legend and stuff, you know? So, um, you know, when I was, I, I wasn't interested in the, in, you know, being like a religious Christian anymore. And, and so I decided to go back to tattooing. I was in a new relationship. So, you know, that's when I got back in, into uh, becoming a tat, doing, being a tattoo artist again in 1990. So, um, and, and uh, so that whole cycle of drug addiction started up again. So you were so you had a seven year run of being sober. Yeah. Wow. That's It'll, excellent, man. So you had a seven year run. What do you think was going on in your life at the time that helped you stay sober during that time? Well, I was I was going to college. So you busy for one, college. yeah. And you know, going to church all the time, and I was doing a lot of outreach. You know, I also went back into the gangs. And, you know, tried, you know, talking to kids about changing their lives. And, you know, so I did a lot of work like that. So I stay pretty busy. So busy in doing helping others and, and having a structure yeah. to your life and, and, and improving yourself. And then what do you, so you're probably, I mean, it seems to me like, and I could be off, but it seems like you're an artist at heart. So it, wouldn't surprise me that even if I met you back then, I might say, yeah, there's a good chance you might bet, end up back in the tattoo world. And so um, what do you think kind of shifted for you? I mean, obviously, you're calling back to art. That totally makes sense. Um, but what do you think influenced you back? Was it just kind of getting back in at the tattoo shop and hanging out with the old crew again? And it was just like too tempting that drew you back? Or? Was it like a relationship or a series of relationships? Yeah, but no, I I think it was uh, my friendship with Jack Jack Rudy. Uh, you know, we always kept in touch, and he always kept me up on what was happening in the tattoo world, and and he always wanted me to to you know tattoo again, you know, and so he, he you know it, finally I felt like you know what because I did other other kinds of art, you know. Um, after I got out of college, you know, uh, I, I um, did designs for a, a souvenir company, and you know, I was an in-house artist there, and 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 I worked in silkscreen things like that. But so you couldn't get away just, from uh, it. Just, <laughs> that's what I figured. You just can't like art is in your blood, man. Yeah, yeah. So I, I stay with the art thing, but I always, I always miss, you know. Um, tattooing and uh 
and then I I made my decision, you know, that I wanted to get back into tattooing, and I talked to Jack, and and uh, he set me up with machines again, and and he had two tattoo shops, so he gave me a job at one of his tattoo shops in San Diego, and I started my journey again. And right about at that time, when when I started tattooing again, is when I met Taylor Hackford, who's a you know movie producer, uh, director, and he was looking for a tattoo artist that knew about prison tattoos for his movie Blood In Blood Out. I don't know if you ever heard of that movie or seen it. Yeah, I have. Um, and so he came and talked to me, and um, and and so I I got involved with that for the next six months. I, I worked on on uh, doing temporary tattoos for Blood In Blood Out. And that became like a second a second job for me because I met the tat- the makeup artist that invented the temporary tattoo, uh, you know, method, and him and I joined up, you know, joined forces, and I went on to do over thirty some features and countless TV shows, you know. Oh, really? Like things that could you movies like Con Air, Blood, uh, Blade. You know, uh, Austin Powers, you know, like a lot of great films. Oh, that is super cool, man. That is super cool. So you, and so, you, so I started, I started tattooing in Hollywood, you know, at, at Tattoo Mania on, on uh, Sunset Strip and, um, and doing all these movies. So things were looking really great then. Yeah, so you're almost like developing into kind of like a, a tattoo rock star on some level, correct? Uh, yes, kind of like that, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. so life yeah, because going- being right there on the Sunset Strip, we started tattooing. We're you know celebrities started getting tattooed, rock stars and stuff, and so you know I was tattooing a lot of celebrities plus all the people I was meeting, you know, on the movie sets and. And I kind of had it locked up. I was the only, you know, tattoo artist that the union would allow to go on a set as a working TA, technical advisor. Oh. You know, so. So, and that was a lot of fun, you know, working on all those movies. And, and you know, and in a way, we were pioneering a new, another new form of art. Uh, this time temporary tattoos from movies because, you know, the, prior to that, they hadn't used tattoos from movies to the way they do today to kind of try to describe a character by the tattoos that he has, you know. Um, I, I think those two movies, there was one called Tattoo with Bruce Stern and uh, another one called The Illustrated Man. And those are the only two movies that had any kind of tattooing in it. And now all of a sudden there was this interest in tattooing and 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 so we were called in on countless movies, you know, to uh create tattoos. So we kind of pioneered that, you know. Yeah. So you're so things are really going well for you. You're on movie sets, you're you're in Hollywood, you're meeting all these people. And so what's going on in your recovery life? Are you just kind of like drawn back into it, drawn back to it, just given kind of the 
environment, the scenario, the people around you? Yeah, and then also it was right around then that I was introduced to, to you know, speed, you know, methamphetamine. And, you know, at the time I was like, wow, this is great. You know, I could be up for days working. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is the answer to no sleep. <laughs> yeah and literally we would be at the tattoo shop because all the guys at the tattoo shop at that time were doing it you know so we would be at the tattoo shop just working all night you know finishing at like six in the morning the tattoo you know, machines so, yeah <laughs> so uh, and then you know um that's also when I learned about mixing heroin with it so you wouldn't get too amped up or you get the feeling of heroin but without nodding out in the middle of a tattoo. Um, I remember one time I was so tired and I was working on this big back piece but I hadn't slept in days, you know, and I didn't nod out but my mind went into like a dream state, you know, so while I'm tattooing on this guy's back, all of a sudden, I wrote my gang tag, you know? I wrote Coyote Sangra on this guy's back. And all of a sudden, I snapped out of it, and I was like, oh, what the hell did I just do? I can't believe I did that, you know? And I got the, sh the shader real fast, you know, and I, I put a shadow right there, you know, like an unnecessary shadow. And that tattoo, it's funny because that tattoo got published, you know, and it, and it, it, it was a nice-looking tattoo, you know, but I always look at that shadow and remember. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. That, you get, that, that was crazy. you got to send me the link to I want to see this. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just so our listeners know, um, if you haven't heard of them, you just Google them. This is like, man, I've been looking at your work. I am, I was, like, blown away. Oh, thank you. About how good you are. The detail, the depth, it's just, like, I actually looked, I was showing my wife, we were looking at your, you know, just online, all the tattoos you've done, and, you know, of course, you know, next to all these famous people, that sort of thing, but then, you know, looking at a lot of the work, I have to be honest, I was like, how in the hell do you actually, like, put that on somebody's body? I was like, that's like 3D-ish. I'm like, how does he do that? It's like extraordinary. <laughs> So, of yeah, course, I guess it is. Quirky Ted is all about like, like I you got to send me the link to the tat to that tattoo that you just described. Okay, I <laughs> got to send that to me. Say, look over here at the <laughs> shadow. <laughs> that is a crazy story. So, um, so how? So is your life, does your life start to crumble then? I mean, do you start running into some roadblocks? Does it start getting out of control again? And I mean, a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people sustain kind of, they're in the highlight, they're in the loop with Hollywood, they're able to sustain it for several years, but the story always seems to end with the big crash. Yes, it, it, it does, especially when I got, when I got sick. But the, the thing that really... You know, um, I, I was able to to kind of maintain it for for a while and and um, and slow down at times, you know, and stop for a little minute, you know. But um, 
so when I was diagnosed with the uh, congestive heart failure, um, you know, I stopped, you know, because uh, they gave me all these different meds to take, um, you know, and admonished me that I, I, I couldn't continue on using any kind of drugs like that, you know, and, and that I might need a heart transplant and you, you have to be sober, you know, for a year to, uh, you know, to qualify for that, you know, so, um, but then a terrible event took place in my life. My youngest son, uh, Lorenzo was, uh, murdered and, uh, and I felt this tremendous amount of guilt about it because, um, I had a custody, custody battle with his mother and he was living in Grover beach with her. And, you know, I won cause he wanted to come and live with me. So I brought him from Grover beach to Los Angeles. And then I wasn't, you know, the best father. I kind of let him, you know, run him up. Um, <clears throat> he got involved with gang things, the very same gang that I was a member of, you know, so, and he ended up getting killed, you know, and this was, just too much for me to bear. And I just became a hopeless dope fiend, you know, um, uh, almost suicidal, you know? And, and then of course, you know, uh, that started affecting those, some arrests, you know, I got arrested for possession. So I was going to court for that. Plus my health was, was really failing me because I stopped taking all the meds I was supposed to, to take. And now again, I was using speed and heroin, you know, so, <clears throat> things got really, really, really bad for me. Uh, I went to prison. I ended up getting convicted, and I went to prison for two years. So there was another little break there, you know, where I was taking the medication. But as soon as I got out, I went right back to it. What did you end up going, so, you end up going to prison for? Uh, you know, they had this this program of, in California called Prop 36. And uh, what it was is... Uh, for people that got arrested for possession, you know, as long as it wasn't possession for sales, they would, you would plead guilty and then they would release you. Uh, but you'd have to go to a, a clinic, you know, and do a program. Okay. And, and if you fail that program, you already pleaded guilty. So if you fail the program and supposedly you get three chances, Oh, um, I get it. I totally get it. So it's like, yeah, you're on the stipulation, but if you're actively using, it's going to be pretty problematic to stay true to the program. And then you, the three strikes, you're out, and then they say, all right, we're going to send you back to prison. Right, exactly. And I, I failed the program. Uh, it was during that time that, that you know, um, when my son died. So, of course, I failed the program. And, you know, so I was already pleaded guilty to possession. So I went to prison, you know, for two years. So you're torn so, up with the loss of Lorenzo. You got guilt. You're, you're in a use cycle. You got this, like, heart condition. Um, and what do you do with it all, man? Yeah, so eventually, you know, when I, <clears throat> when I got out and I was on parole, but uh, you know, the, the, the thing that was really difficult, you know, the, the guilt that I felt, it seemed like <clears throat> when, <clears throat> when I was high or on heroin and stuff, you know, I didn't, I didn't care. 
And I didn't think about it. You know, I didn't want to think about my son. I didn't want anybody to mention his name. I didn't want to have any pictures of him. I didn't want anything that would even remind me of his existence, you know. And um, that was the way I dealt with it, you know, and I stayed pretty hammered. You know, so when I got out, I started doing the same exact thing again. And then also I started feeling really sick because I wasn't taking the meds I was using. And I could tell I was sick again because of the shortness of breath and the chest pains, you know. So, <clears throat> so, but I was strung out really bad, but my health got really bad. And eventually, like clockwork, I got arrested again, you know, because I was on parole. Uh, they came and searched my hotel room and, you know, and I got arrested again for, you know, for possession. And so... But this time when I went into the county jail, I got so sick, you know, the withdrawals plus my heart condition. So you went cold turkey? So you went cold turkey off opiates or heroin? Yes. And you have a heart condition. And I have a heart condition. And I was in that grubby L.A. county jail. (laughs) Cold with one blanket. (laughs) It was bad, you know. Uh, the one thing in my favor was, you know, I, I, uh, I, over the years, I knew all the, met all these sheriff deputies and I, I would tattoo them, you know? So I was like really famous with all the sheriffs, you know? So <clears throat> as soon as I got to the county jail, they pulled me out of the, you know, the processing line and everything. And they put me in a, a dorm, uh, w- with the paisas. The paisas are the undocumented workers, you know, uh, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so they uh, in the county jail they do all the work, <laughs> and and everybody else is pretty much locked down, but they have these dorms just for for paisas and they do all the work in the jail, you know, and so they put me in that paisa dorm. But I was really sick. I remember when they when they came and got me, I was laying in a crowded cell about 50 people you know it was just shoulder to shoulder but i was laying on the floor trying to get air from under the door because i just couldn't breathe you know and they came they're like what are you doing down there come on and then when they were trying to walk me to the area i could only take like three steps and i had to stop and i was gasping for the air and they're like dude what's wrong with you and i was like oh i got asthma i just i lied to them having an asthma attack you know but um, you know, the jail doctor there, uh, you know, when, when, uh, he checked me, he was like, I, I, I don't see how you can go on without a heart transplant, you know? So, and that's how sick I was. And then I had a heart attack. So, and I ended up having three heart attacks, but after the second heart attack, you know, and then they would take you across. Uh, the way to the county general hospital, there was a jail ward up there, you know. So um, I'd have a heart attack, and then they take me over there to that, to that jail ward, and they give me all kinds of meds and everything, and then send me back to the jail in a wheelchair, you know. And then the sheriffs would come down and get me out of the hospital and put me back in that dorm. But after the second, <clears throat> um, you know, I was so depressed, you know, because. Here I was, you know, I, I couldn't lay down, I couldn't sleep, you know, I couldn't breathe. Um, my 
my chest was constantly in pain. I just felt I was certain that I was going to die, you know, and, and, um, I remembered, you know, and I, that's a terrible feeling to see everybody around you laughing and going on with their life and you sitting right there dying and knowing that you brought it upon yourself. You know, it's just like, I did this to me, you know, I'm like this because of me. Recovery Nation, producer John here again. Thank you so, so much to Freddie Negretti, Steve Jones, and Luis Rodriguez for sharing their time with us. Stay tuned for part two to hear Freddie's unconventional path to recovery. To learn more about Freddie, check out Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos in stores now. We also recommend Luis Rodriguez's book, It Calls You Back. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.